future-proofing, future-proofing our lives so that we can be ready for that glorious day when we retire, uh, when we no longer need to work to turn the lights on or to make sure there's enough uh, baked beans in the cupboard. It kind of occupies a lot of our thinking, occupies a lot of our planning, occupies a lot of our energy. Uh, as we've been talking about, we like to talk about what we daydream about, what, what we dream about, and then also sometimes uh, occupies some of our nightmares, if you like. Will we have enough super, superannuation uh, to live the way that we've dreamed of living? Will we have invested into the right properties, into the right shares, you know, got on the cryptocurrency Bitcoin market at just the right time? And then we, we, we think, will, will we actually be physically in shape and have the kind of health that we want to enjoy the kind of life that we dream of having? Investment and preparedness into being ready for the arrival of how we want to live out the last 10 to 15 years of our lives is a big business. In fact, our whole working life is geared toward this and has this in mind and financial planners and investment managers uh, are here to help us make decisions around these kind of things so we don't go and invest poorly and we don't make inappropriate uh, investments and things and miss out on the, on the retirement that you know, we dreamed of that's on offer. Being ready for the arrival of retirement is something we are told to organize and prioritize our lives around from the moment we flip that first burger at Macca's to the moment we might lay the last brick in a wall or put the last nail in a stud, maybe correct the last test or exam or a bit of paper from a student or maybe help the last patient uh, into their hospital bed or their nursing home. We need to be investing. We need to be prepared so that we can continue to live the way our hearts hope to live, even if it is only for the last 10 to 15 years of our lives as we maybe walk along the beach out there and watch the sun set. We have some cracking sunsets down here. Pick up the odd seashell and occasionally track out on an adventure and just roll our swag out on the bank of some river somewhere and just self-indulge with all the toys that we've accumulated over life. Financial planners, investment managers, Know that Jesus wasn't being cryptic when he said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He was giving the most accurate diagnosis, the most accurate diagnostic tool for how we ultimately understand life and how it is to be lived. They know, as Jesus did, that what you believe the future holds shapes how you prepare and plan to live life now and what you will invest your time into, your resources into, your energy into. But Jesus goes a bit further and he says it's your faithfulness or your faithlessness to these convictions to live in view of the anticipated future that you have that reveals whether your heart has been truly shaped by that reality. We are in Luke's Gospel here at Freeway. Thank you, Ben Lowe, for bringing us our passage today. And over the past weeks, uh, Jesus has been drilling down into our motives and the allegiances of our hearts. And, and we've been listening to him as he addresses the crowds and his disciples. 
into what it looks like to be the kind of believers that Jesus has come to make this new community out of, to form this kingdom of God that he keeps talking about. A community in which the uh, values and the priorities match the character and the will of God. A community shaped by the new future that God has for them, that is being promised for them in Jesus a community of people with changed relationships towards God as a loving father, not just the, you know, the, cre- the creative king. Ones with changed and transformed relationships towards money and possession and power. That these things are to be used as means to aid others, not merely means to comfort ourselves. Ones we've changed worship priorities based on what they encounter in Jesus, that he is the highest priority to chase after in life and not just material things. Religion is relational, not merely ritual. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is not just some nice man trotting out some life principles and behavior modification tips. He's described himself as the divine warrior, the strong one. The Messianic king come to turn this world upside down, come to overthrow the rule and the reign of sin in the human heart, come to reorder the priorities of our hearts and warm them with affection for God, come to bring the rule and the reign of God into the lives of people, into their hearts, not merely into continents and countries, not merely into politics and power. Jesus has been teaching his disciples that in view of this, they are not to live merely for earthly treasures, but they are to be seeking after the kingdom of God that is coming with all this teaching, which according to Jesus has come near in him, has arrived in him. And according to Jesus, that they are now now the beneficiaries of. We saw that last week, little flock. Your father, it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And that is a past tense things so like it's happened it's yours you're not waiting for it you're participating in it now you didn't have to earn it it was given to you but as Jesus continues his teaching on the nature and the necessity of kingdom living this seeking after the kingdom as he describes it also actually is an, an anticipation uh, preparedness um, strength will rise we sang this morning Preparing for things greater to come. Seeking is the living out and the desiring more and more of the reality of the kingdom of God in our lives. Jesus' discussion about seeking the kingdom of God naturally leads into what every Jewish heart has longed for. And that is the full and final culmination of the kingdom of God. Where God would come as creations judge and judge the world with righteousness and justice bringing judgment for the wicked for the unfaithful and joy and peace for the faithful through his presence an event that according to the book of Daniel is tied up in this coming of this heavenly this mysterious figure called the son of man This divine, eternal figure, a title that Jesus uses to define himself, a title that he uses in this passage. 
in a vision of the last days where God, the ancient of days, executes judgment over history's powers and over history's kingdom builders. The prophet Daniel, who operated around the 7th, 6th century BC, says this, I saw one like the Son of Man coming on the clouds to receive everlasting dominion, a kingdom that will not pass away. Read about that in Daniel 7. A kingdom that replaces all the previous kingdoms and powers of the world. In our passage today, Jesus links how our present participation in the activity of the kingdom of God prepares and qualifies us for that full and final arrival. And he places himself as the one who governs and judges both of these things. Some people have argued that the disciples couldn't have understood uh, that Jesus was speaking about his second coming, that this coming of the Son of Man is actually his second coming, as they have no categories for it. Uh, So it couldn't possibly be in their view, regardless of whether uh, they had a full understanding of what Jesus would do and would eventually do, there is still enough in this for it to be instructional. There's still enough in this instruction to be instructional. So in view of the coming of the Son of Man, live a certain way. Well, the beautiful news is, is that Son of Man is going to be Jesus. There will be a great day of judgment overseen by the Son of Man. So live accordingly. The use of son of man by Jesus here means that he does have clearly in mind this idea of the second coming. And the good news is that he will not disappear without making it clear to the disciples and to us that his return, uh, that he's talking about his return after his ascension. That it will be uh, the coming of the end of this present age and the beginning of a new age. And their participation in that will be based on their faithfulness and how they operate in this, in this in-between time, what we call the end times, the expanse of time. Their faithfulness or their faithlessness to him. Which is why the New Testament writers, which Luke's one of, hold the second coming of Jesus as, as the most important event to shape the life of the church that emerges out of the gospel about Jesus. There are 260 chapters in the New Testament and there are 318 references to the return of Jesus. Now, I haven't done the math, just trust in the commentators, that that works out to be one in 25 verses referring to the return of Christ. And this is because of places like today's passage where Jesus himself speaks passionately about his return and the implications and the responsibilities that our lives hold to that. And even though the New Testament writers and Jesus himself reference it so much and they describe the universality of that return, its glory and its scope, along with the universality of its judgment and its joy that the second coming of the Son of Man will have, all of them give scant, if not any, details to the when of that when it will happen. In fact, Jesus says no one knows the day or the hour. 
doesn't stop, hasn't stopped some church leaders, churches, cults mainly uh, from obsessing over interpreting uh, signs, so-called signs of the end of the world, probably Collingwood into a prelims one, um, so that they can possibly pin, pin it down. Uh, most of the time I find they use this to control, they, they use their control or their mastery of interpreting these signs and that so that they can control and master people. However, Jesus's and the New Testament writers' intent is not to give us clues about how to pin down the when of that great day. But rather, as Tim Keller points out, they are concerned about how we should be concerned about how that great day will find us. Will we have an approach to life that is ready for its arrival? Will we have invested our lives in anticipation of its arrival. That day will make public over the presence or the absence of salvation based in our faithfulness or our faithlessness, which is precisely Jesus' concern here when he says, you, uh, just like these people in these parables, you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. How will that day find his disciples? How will it find us? Will it find us with an approach of faithfulness? Find us in the activity of preparedness? Our lives shaped by the expectation of the return of the Master? Or will it find us in the activity of hypocrisy, indifference and dismissiveness, which is what the bottom passages of the reading today describe find us with this faithlessness to the return of the master and the work of the kingdom that he has gifted to us that he has given to us to be involved in jesus sets up the parables about this concern uh, with a contrast between faithful and faithfulness the ready and the not ready and their eternal condition is based in which approach to life they have been found to invest into. Jesus starts out by saying that participating in the kingdom of God is not a hobby that you just turn to with your spare time or that you give your loose time to in the absence of something else, in the absence of some grander, bigger, better thing to invest into. It's not a part-time investment that you do on a Sunday morning just between the hours of 10 in the morning and 12 it's a constant state of activity, of approach and investment because you are joyfully aware that any moment, any moment, Jesus could return. I mean, how often do you think like that? If that is the number one shaping event of the church, according to the New Testament, according to the writers, it occupies a great deal of their writing and teaching. How much time does that occupy our thinking? Because the amount of time it occupies our thinking is probably going to determine and shape how we live. Jesus says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men, be like people who are waiting for their master to come home from a wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. And blessed are those servants whom their master finds awake when he comes. Truly, first time that word is used, truly, listen carefully. 
in the Gospel of Luke. I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and he will serve them. If he comes in the second watch or the third watch and finds them awake, finds them alert, blessed are those servants. Jesus uses strong language. The stay dressed, keep your lamps burning are emphatic statements that say regardless of what you see others doing, you are to have a posture of anticipation, of activity, of of welcomeness, of expectation. Jesus is laying down teaching in anticipation of the time in which the church will bear witness to him during the time of his absence, a time between his um, resurrection from the dead and ascension to his second coming. That's the time we all live in. It's called the end times. It's been going since Jesus' ascension. Jesus employs the image of a master away at a wedding. Weddings could go for days. They could last a week. So who knows when the, when the master is going to kind of pull up stumps and head on home. This house of servants, though, have stayed dressed for action and they have kept the house lights on. To be dressed, ready for action here, uh, you know, gird up your loins, I think is a thing, is a picture of them having their robes tucked into their belts, of being ready to go so that if they're called into action, if they have to respond to the knock at the door from the master, they don't get caught up on anything, they get tangled on anything, They're they're not encumbered from their service. At any level, we would go, let's roll up our sleeves and and get ready to lay a few bricks or something like that. To keep the lamps burning means that the home is warm and welcoming. Nothing has been neglected. Nothing has been let go. When the master returns, he will find his home in order and ready to welcome him. Regardless of whether the master rolls in at midnight or 3 a.m. in the morning, Uh, On whatever day of the week he decides to come home, his servants are watchful and wakeful. Being about the business of being ready to serve and to celebrate should he arrive home. The lesson here is regardless of what anyone else does in response to my absence and how long I'm away for, you are to be watchful and wakeful always living as though the Son of Man could just turn up at any moment. There's a surprising twist in the story that Jesus tells. As the sound of the knock at the door announcing the arrival of the master kind of echoes through the house, the servants spring into action and they open the door, letting him in and lead him to his favorite recliner where uh, Kent Hughes calls it his favorite nocturnal snack is waiting for him and perhaps his favorite beverage is just sitting there being provided. The master of the house is not seen kicking his shoes off and reclining himself, but he is seen dressing himself for service losing his wedding robes, his garb, tucking his own cloak into his belt, inviting his servants to his table so that he might serve them. Such is his delight to find his servants pursuing his own heart. Such is his anticipation on returning to find his servants after his own heart. Rather than have them toil a minute longer, he wishes to bless their faithfulness. And it's an impromptu banquet. 
at which the least and the last are truly elevated to positions of honor by the master, where the powerful and the privileged use their position and their power to serve the lowly and the marginalized and servants. It is a picture of eternity. To us, this is a heartwarming scene. And it's the kind of twist that we're used to in our modern storytelling because our modern storytelling is very heavily influenced by the stories of a God who would come and serve his creation. However, for the first disciples, this is the first category of how they understand the kingdom of God to be shattered and to be shifted. This kind of reversal of roles was unthinkable to them. No master would ever wear the robes of a servant or invite his slaves to come and sit at his table. What kind of master would ever think about uh, making himself to be nothing, taking on the form of a servant? It is historically unheard of and culturally, it's a culturally counterintuitive thing. What kind of master are we dealing with here in this parable? Well, a master like the Son of Man, a master like Jesus, one who they have seen throughout their lifetime uh, as they travel the roads with him. Um, he is master over all physical things, over all sicknesses and, and physical ailments. He's master over the spiritual world. He, 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 he heals, he forgives. He's, he's master over the natural world. He calms storms. He's Lord over all creation and he's been reversing the chaos of sin in people's lives, uh, bringing the kingdom of God here and there. Everywhere he touches and puts his finger, sin is reversed, the kingdom comes. He has come to serve. He has come to use all of his power, all of his might, all of his majesty to serve. And in serving, saving. And in saving, setting people free. As Phil Riken says in his commentary, the parable of the wedding servants could only be told by the kind of God who would wear the weakness of his people by taking on the flesh of their humanity who would strip his robes to wash the feet of his disciples and who would serve as their substitute by dying on a cross for their sins. And so faithful servants reflect their master's grace. They serve because they have first been served. They have encountered this kind of grace from their master. They invest into the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God has been invested into them. The presence of one reality shapes the other. The disciples may not yet have the full story, but it's coming, but we have the full story. We are the ones who Jesus describes later on, the ones who have been given much. We can see how Jesus has put himself into this parable. We can know that he is the returning son of man who will invite us to his table. If he finds us uh, faithfully living as kingdom people when he returns, investing all that he has given us, not into something as fleeting as 15 years of retirement, but into something as majestic as eternity and his presence 
such an image should have us wake every day with an approach of wakeful, watchful, thankfulness. Jesus switches uh, the environment of what it will be like for those who choose not to take seriously the return of the Son of Man, who neglect the gifts and the blessings of the kingdom of God in which they have been uh, asked to uh, participate in serving. They fail to take care of those uh, in need of the master's resources. This time, though, it is not a servant in view here. It is the manager, the master of a house and how he looks after that house. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what time a thief was coming, he would not have left the house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. It will not be joyous. It will not be a time of blessing. Rather, it will be a time of loss, a time of devastation. So the image of a thief is used here. This is not an occasion of blessing, but rather an occasion of burglary, an occasion of unexpected and unprepared for loss. Faithlessness, a rejection of the offer into the kingdom of God and to live, that way leads to further loss it probably needs to be noted that this is not a parable about whether you can earn or lose your salvation but rather what you do with the offer of salvation respond with joyful anticipation of its blessing or reject it and suffer even further loss when Jesus turns up grace does not end accountability rather the goal of grace the grace of the master who would serve us is to create people who are faithful and zealous in their service of God, whose lives are shaped by and lived out uh, of anticipation of his return. We serve because we have first been served. We invest because we have first been invested into. We're actually going to pull up here we're actually going to pause here and spend some time preparing our hearts for communion Jesus has been describing what a heart that has been shaped by grace operates like and what a heart that neglects grace operates like one is preparing for eternity of blessing and the other is preparing preparing for an eternity of loss of judgment one is preparing for an eternity of being served by Jesus, the other is preparing for an attorney of being cut off by Jesus. That's what that graphic language depicts of being ultimately judged and separated from. We are being asked to examine our hearts. What are we investing into? How does what we really believe about the future shape how we live now? If we don't think there is any imminent return of Jesus, then we will live to ourselves but if we do we will live to him do we believe that jesus is coming soon unexpectedly or do we live negligently toward that dismissive of its responsibilities and implications are we using what god has entrusted to us big or small for the good of others others for the glory of god 
Or are we careless? Am I careless with my stewardship? Am I selfish with God's resources? Like it's been pretty, it's been pretty penetrating over the last few weeks, has it not? This table, as Paul points out, is a table of examination because it proclaims the promise of Jesus that he is coming back. We are to participate in this small banquet knowing that a much larger one is coming at which Jesus will serve us. A banquet that Jesus told his disciples that he longs for. He longs for the day where he will, he will sit and drink with these disciples. So I think at this point in Luke's gospel, it's a good time to bring our hearts before the Lord and give thanks for the service that he has had towards us and maybe ask for the grace and that grace to shape our lives until he comes again. Maybe renew or revisit what it is that we've been investing our lives into. Maybe you've lived with little thought to the historic reality that Jesus will return. And with that judgment, that will either multiply your joy or multiply your loss. Christianity, though, is not a religion for faithful servants. You don't earn your way into it. But a gospel for unfaithful servants, it comes to us. Grace invests to us. This table invites you to be served. And in that grace, live out radically transformed lives with a radically transformed future. Jesus has worn the garments of our servitude. He has served us with his very death. And he's invited us to sit down at his table where he feeds our souls with grace. Now we live watchful. Now we live wakeful in anticipation of his return. This morning, as we're just closing out the sermon, the service before Sam comes up with our final song, just time by yourself, thinking about what your life has invested it into. What has it been shaped by? And then coming forward and just remembering what it costs to have your heart radically reshaped what was not held back from you so that you might have a radically different future and as you take uh, the bread and the wine just give thanks that you have a changed reality and a changed future